ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Welcome back to Outside the Box with Jeff Conine. We are pretty much the day before opening day. Some might be listening to this the evening before opening day. Some might be listening to this the morning of opening day, which for me is a national holiday. I think for you, it is as well. I'm Aram Layton. He's Jeff Conine and Niner. We've had an awesome appetizer with the World Baseball Classic, which I know you attended. Spring training, I know you were very involved with. But there's nothing quite like opening day. No, there's nothing that can replace opening day. And I think uh, every ball player that's going to bed tonight is got a little butterflies in their stomach and they should, you know, it's a, it's a nervous day of nerves and, and that day of uh, when you start your next season. And um, I think if you're not nervous going out for opening day, something's wrong. So we're going to talk about the World Baseball Classic, which, again, you were at and really got to experience firsthand. And it was a remarkable, remarkable event. I was Really fortunate to be able to take that in as well. Uh, but then I also want to hear from you being back on the ball field and, and being involved in spring training was able to speak to a couple Marlins prospects who very much valued their uh, the conversations that they were able to have with you. So I know how much pride you take in being able to teach, whether, whether it was at your time at FIU and just being able to share your knowledge and the nuggets from your 20 plus years in the game professionally. Uh, and it's really cool to, to see some players really appreciating what you're able to bring to the table. Real quick, you experienced, we talked about it, like 15 opening days, roughly, we're saying about around there. Was there one that stuck out to you more than any? Like, do you have any specific opening day memory? Of course, the first one probably hits a little different, but do you have any specific chaos or or something really memorable that happened in mm. one of your many opening <laughs> days between 93 and, you know, 2007? Um. Yeah, of course, opening day, the first day of the Marlins franchise, uh, that was obviously a special day that that sticks out um, probably more than any. But yeah, we were in Baltimore, I think it was 2003, and we had a freak snowstorm come in in the middle of the first inning. Like it was it was so intense that Jay Gibbons was playing right field. We're playing, I believe it was the. I have to go back and, and figure out who we were playing, but it doesn't even matter because the snow started falling so hard and they wouldn't stop the game. We we're playing in a snowstorm. And I remember someone was at the plate, the pitch came in and there was a, a fly ball. But as soon as it left the bat, nobody knew where it was going. I think the general vicinity was right field. So Jay Gibbons is standing out there waiting for the ball to come down. And all of a sudden he sees the ball roll in front of him. So he picks it up and throws it in and whomever hit the ball was standing on third base and for a triple. And then Mike Hargrove goes out there and like, what the hell's going on? The umpires didn't know what was going on. And I can't remember if they overturned it or not, but on replay, it hit the railing on the stands and ricocheted back into play because nobody could see where the ball was coming from and falling from because it was snowing so hard. 
So Jay Gibbs just picked it up and threw it in, and I believe they gave him a triple. Um, and then on, upon there was no review back then, but when the announcers were trying to track and follow the ball with the TV cameras, they saw that it hit the railing in the stands in right field and ricocheted back onto the field of play. And it's and they, crazy. They, they ended up they ended up calling not calling suspended the game. Uh, it snowed pretty hard for about thirty five minutes. Didn't really even stick on the ground, and then it cleared up, and it was a beautiful day for the rest of the day. That's insane. I, baseball is the one sport that you just cannot play in the snow, right? I mean, like aside yeah, from the fact no. that it hurts to hit for your hands, I can't imagine trying to track a fly ball in the snow. I can't imagine again trying to umpire in the snow. And, and that thought, you telling that story of a ball like literally hitting the railing uh, and and being scored as something else and ruled as something else, I wonder how many times throughout the years and even more recent history, like throughout your you know playing career. Where there were plays like that without replay that, you know, are in the record books as they are and, and are in the history books as the way they are that didn't really happen that way. Um, you know, that was where the art of selling something actually mattered, right? You you, you short hopped a ball like and you, you scooped it maybe in the outfield and rolled over and no one could tell. Did you ever like have one of those where you fully tricked the umpire with, with maybe a catch or a hit by pitch or something? Uh, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. I had 7,000 at bats. So I'm not like totally sure what happened if I did uh, that ever. Or I remember deacon a runner one time really bad, um, with the wall at, at pro player. Uh, there was a guy on second base and there's one out and the guy hits a fly ball. I know is going to be off the wall, but I camped under it. Like I was going to catch this thing. And the guy froze. He thought I was going to catch it. And I turned around at the last second, got it off the wall and, and held him to third base. I mean, I, I fooled some runners like that, but I don't think I ever, uh, I don't remember diving for a play and then and really selling it. Um, it, it happened a bunch of times. I know that. Yeah, it, it's it's funny because that's that's something that you, you can't get away with really ever now. Um, and, and was part of the game back then. Deking in the outfield is a lost art, and and I hope more guys start to do that. There's still some guys out there that do a good job of it, and and it really can make a difference. Can save you 90 feet and, and can make a difference in a ball game. I want to talk about real quick the WBC and then we'll get into spring training and then a little bit more on opening day and some trivia on yourself because I like to quiz you on your own statistics throughout your career. Uh, but the World Baseball Classic was something we hadn't seen in in, in seven years now, right? It, or at least six years. Uh, and because it was canceled during COVID and it's only every three to four years. So being able to have this event, I think, back in Miami again, it was really good for for baseball in Miami. I think it was it was an example of how much that stadium can be packed in, how many baseball fans there are in the area. And a lot of people flew in from Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, all over. But a lot of people were local uh, and, and a lot of people just wanted to go out and see good baseball. And it was great baseball. What was your biggest takeaway from the World Baseball Classic? Uh, because as someone that's played on the big stage, you've played in the World Series, you've played for several different franchises and fan bases, but there's something unique about the the WBC. Yeah. You know, you just, you just can't um, replace the excitement and the fervor of, of nationalism. When you get these countries that come in, D Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, uh, I say those countries because that's the ones I saw at um, the WBC. And those fan bases are so passionate when you get that nationalistic feel going in a, in a competition like this, that stadium was as loud as any world series game that I ever played in. Really? Um, I mean, the energy was out of control and these people did not leave their seats. You know, they did not leave their seats for nine straight innings. You, you look down in the concourse or you look down in the seats and you're expecting, you know, people to rush out for a hot dog or whatever. 
They didn't leave. They didn't leave. Yeah. I never saw big lines going up to the get a concession. Even they just stayed in the, the whole time, waving their flags and playing their instruments and making noise. And uh, it was one of the most exciting baseball atmospheres, besides the fact that we had some great baseball games uh, that I've ever, ever been a part of or I've ever seen. And like you said, it it you know it, it begs the fact that look what could be in Miami um, if just. 70% of those people showed up. Um, and I, and I guarantee 70 of those percent of those people had to be local. Um, like you said, you know, people came in. Um, so I think everything was just done so well. Um, the game management, the stadium management parking, I thought went, everything was just managed so well, uh, from an operational standpoint that, um, you know, it, it showed what, a showcase uh, this ballpark is for one and how nice it is a venue. And that even though you got a big crowd, um, it works. So a couple of things, because I think you hit on a couple of really important points. One, I I was floored at just how smoothly everything operated because it wasn't just from the fan standpoint of, of sellout after sellout after sellout and something that, you know, let's be honest that the staff isn't totally used to there. They were prepared for that. They were well-staffed. You mentioned the parking. That's been a nightmare in the past with less fans. They had that all working really smoothly. And then the media side of things, which I can speak to, they had media from all over, right? The Latin American countries, uh, from the Caribbean, and then even from Japan, which that was a whole nother beast of all of the you know amazing media members that were so passionate from Japan coming all the way over for this. It, it was basically like the Super Bowl in their words, which was really cool. So to be able to handle all of that, accommodate all of that was amazing. The one thing that I on the Marlins understandably couldn't accommodate, which they usually do is having the food like, uh, you know, kind of laid out in the press box. There's hundreds of media members. It just didn't make sense. So instead they gave you food vouchers. So I would go down to the concourse, use my food voucher and go get, you know, some food during the games. I was floored at how short the lines were at the, you know, different vendors and at the different concessions. And I actually tweeted the exact thing that you said, because it was these fans of Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Mexico, whoever it was, that all just had no interest in getting, you know, food. <laughs> if the beer guy came by, sure, they'd grab a beer, but the the concourse was empty. I've never seen it like that. And, and that was a testament to how locked in fans were on every single pitch. That's what st stood out the most to me. It felt like everybody was hanging on every pitch, which is that World Series type of atmosphere. So I, I want to to echo one more thing that you said there, because I I, I don't know if people fully processed it. And you played not only in World Series games, you played in World Series games in football stadiums that had, you know, 65,000 people in it. Right. Maybe more than that. You're telling me yep, that and I know the dome, the dome works in their in, in the favor of of the sound there because it's a bit of an echo chamber. But was that really the loudest environment you, you've been in in a baseball game? And like you said, the roof, the acoustics in there uh, lend to crowds and that it reverberates off that roof and comes back down. So just for sheer volume. That was the loudest venue I think I've ever been in. That's so um, cool. it was crazy. That's so cool. Um, what's your biggest takeaway from the games? Because, you know, there was something we talked about briefly before we recorded. And it's kind of a, a tired debate now because I think people could really see how important this tournament is, especially when you saw Japan's reaction to winning that Shohei Otani, the most talented player on the planet, his reaction to shutting the door there ahead of what is a contract year for him, ahead of what's going to be the biggest contract in baseball history. Uh he didn't care. He was throwing 102, laying it all on the line against his teammate. Uh, but the passion there that you spoke about is some, some were talking about the risk, having, having it 
being right before the season. And you had, unfortunately, Edwin Diaz go down, which was just heart-wrenching watching that after such a high to a low, the beating Puerto Rico, beating the Dominican, and then just seeing the the glue of that team just laying on the ground, you know, with a torn patella tendon. Obviously, that's an unfortunate situation. We saw players get hurt in spring training. Reese Hoskins, unfortunately, tore his ACL for the Phillies going back on a ground ball. You mentioned before we were recording injuries could happen anywhere. Uh, But there's something about the the rebuttal I kept getting as I made my case for the WBC was it's different when it happens under team surveillance versus playing in an exhibition game elsewhere is is how that the naysayers would phrase it as someone who played for you know, in the major leagues for parts of 17 seasons. Um, I know you didn't play in a WBC. I don't think it even existed uh, by the time your career year before my last year, maybe right. Yeah. 2006. So, yeah. So at, at that point you weren't going to play in it, but you know, as someone who who understands what goes into everything on the backside of baseball and, and being a player and also now being on the front office side, what is your opinion on you know, that kind of debate and where do you kind of stand on that? seems like the vast majority understands the importance of the world baseball classic and growing this sport and, and showing the passion on the field. But that said, I understand where some people are coming from on there. I just think that, that people got too lost in that opinion. Yeah. You know what? Um, I liked it. I mean, I, I like the, that these guys get to represent their countries and, and they're so enthusiastic about representing their countries and they go out there and they play hard baseball um and i don't think we see quite the the um fervor in american players as we do and the the latin players um they brought it know, out of them the a japanese little bit though. players what's that they brought it out of them a little bit though oh my god yeah i i guarantee i mean trey turner was so fired up when he's hitting these home runs and and in big situations these games the guys were going crazy they're all jumping out of the dugout i mean you get caught up in it you know but i think entering into it's more subdued reaction than, uh-huh. than the other countries. Um, but like you said, they definitely got into it because, uh, you know, the, the Cuba game after Wainwright gets out of that first inning and then, you know, what you uh, see in the final game against Japan. I mean, that's emotion that you don't really see from anybody unless they're in the playoffs and it's in meaningful games in the postseason. So, um, you know, the injury thing, I think it's going to happen. It could happen anywhere. You know, in spring training, you could get hurt. Um, and I understand that the, the adrenaline's flowing a little bit more with 35,000 people screaming and your country behind you. You're going to push a little harder than than most other times. But, uh, you know, when you start a month in, I mean, for me, a month, I was ready to go. Uh, I could have started the season after a month of spring training. Uh, these guys got there uh, February 13th. The, the tournament didn't start till March 10th or, or 13th, right around there. So it wasn't a question of uh, they weren't being prepared um, yeah. and they weren't ready to go because with a month under their belts, they're ready to go. I, I totally agree. And, and that's what most of the players said. And, and if you're somebody that is very routine oriented and didn't feel like you're ready to go, don't play in it. You don't have right. to. Um, and, and I felt like the fans that were, it was a lot of Mets fans, understandably, that were pushing back in my you know, pro WBC tweet, which I get they're upset, but I, you know, if, if you're not the one paying these players, then I don't totally get it. But even then teams get reimbursed based off the insurance and whatever else MLB reimbursed Steve Cohen, the $15.5 million that Edwin Diaz is owed this year. That was a report that came out. So uh, if you're very worried about his pockets, he was covered. It's more unfortunate that the Mets lose, you know, the best closer in the game. And it's really most unfortunate for Edwin Diaz who 
probably doesn't even regret playing in it. Like he, he seemed like he was one of the most passionate in it. And, you know, I know MJ Melendez and a couple other players were talking about how he was having like get togethers before to kind of have the chemistry going for team Puerto Rico. And it was something that was important to them. So uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to going back and, and doing it again in, in a couple of years. And I know it's always going to be back in Miami, but you even got to throw the first pitch out at one of the games. That was, that was pretty cool. Uh, who was alongside yeah, was you again cool. for the first pitch? Levon. Oh, you had Levon next to you. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally missed it. I had somebody text me and say, did you see Niner throw out the first pitch? I was like, what the hell? I, you didn't tell me. Yeah, um, it was USA versus Cuba. Um, they, they didn't even let me know until that day. Um, <laughs> I got a text about probably, I don't know, noon that day saying, hey, MLB, I'm sorry that we didn't get to this get this to you sooner, but MLB wanted to reach out and ask if you would uh, join Levon Hernandez in the first pitch, you know, USA versus Cuba. So, how cool is uh, that? An honor. I said, absolutely, I'd go out there. So it was fun uh, catching up with him a little bit and going out there on the field and throwing that first pitch and uh, watching a great game. <clears throat> Talk about a pitcher who could rake. Levon could swing it a little bit back in the day. He was an athlete, man. You don't realize, I mean, he got um, you know a little chunky at the end there, but he was an athlete, man. The guy could rake. He could run well. He threw well. You'd watch him take ground balls. I mean, he's very coordinated. Um and I think he probably could have played another position if that's the uh, route he would have wanted to take. Speaking of pitchers who can hit, we got the chance to see Shohei Otani up close and personal. And that batting practice, I don't. did you get there early enough to see the batting practice at any point? I didn't see his. I saw the tail end of the USA's batting practice, but not his. And it's insane. I mean, this guy's a monster. He's huge. Uh, when they're standing up, they're lined up, you know, and for the national anthems and you know, you just look at the size of this guy and how fast he can move that body. And then, you know, he's running in from the bullpen after he's warming up to take his at bat and then running back out there to warm up. I mean, it's it's a unique situation that we may never see again. The batting practice. And by the way, I got to ask him about that. And, you know, I was like, have you ever really run back and forth like that? He's like, I did it a couple of times. It was no big deal. I'm like, it's just annoying. He's one of those guys that's just everything comes easy to him, I guess. But in batting practice, he hit one off the scoreboard in center field. And, and if I didn't have it on video and wasn't able to rewatch it, I don't think I would have believed it. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. He was top spinning home runs into the upper deck. Like they looked like they were nosediving into the upper deck. I've never seen anybody do that. Uh, could you just like put into perspective, like how many guys do you think that have ever held a baseball bat could pepper one off of that scoreboard in dead center at Lone Depot Park? Stanton's the only one that I've seen. He's done it off the scoreboard? Yeah. Yeah, he did that in, in batting practice. And he hit one three-quarters of the way up those windows out in left field. Um, I mean, he just hit, you know, balls that you've never – I've never seen hit before. I haven't seen Otani batting practice live. You know, I saw him in the All-Star game. And um, and it's just a, a swing that uh, – it's unique, but the lightning bat speed that goes through the zone is just uh, – it's special. You know, it's just a special – Everything about that kid is special. And he looks like he's 12 years old. I mean, he does. What is he like 29 now or 28? Yeah, he's 29. I'm about to be 29. He, but he looks like he's 14. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> uh, unbelievable. And just joy. I mean, you know, and the respect that the Japanese players, um, you know, show this game and showed uh, the crowd there at uh, Lone Depot was just, uh, it was a special moment. It really was. And, and it was it was as good of a final as you could ever ask for to, to have it go down. It felt like it was scripted between Trout and Otani there. So you can't even make that up. Uh, you know, I'm watching the game behind in the suite at that point, And I see that I'm watching the at bat and I see him release, I think, his 2-1 pitch maybe. And from my vantage point up top, it looked like a slider. 
It looked like a slider. So then I look up at the at the replay, and he yanked a fastball at 102 miles an hour that broke like a slider. I mean, yeah. I've never seen a pitch like that before in my. I mean, it, Rivera had a 95 mile an hour slider that was his fastball, but this was 101, 102 that was cutting like it looked like it could have been a slider. It, 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 when I saw some of those pitches, I was like, "Try us." And when you when one of the best hitters of all time, you feel like he has no shot. That shows you how nasty Shohei is. And the, for a fun stat, Mike Trout has swung and missed three times in an at-bat and only 24 at-bats in his entire career. And I know that's not Tony Gwynn-esque, but we're talking about a guy that, you know, he he swings and misses a little bit more than some of the best hitters ever. But that's still very few at-bats to do that. Uh, and it's a testament to Trout, but Shohei got him to do that there. And and that was that was one of those battles where it was like, Trout worked the count, but it was going to be hard to square up anything that he was throwing there. It was like Goliath and Goliath, not David and Goliath. It was yeah. the two superstars that play on the same team facing off was you couldn't have, like you said, oh, couldn't have scripted any better. So a little bit less suspenseful, but I think just as enjoyable for you was spring training and, and you're back, you know, involved working with players from the minor leagues to the major leagues. And, um, you know, honestly, I, I haven't had a chance to catch up with you even off the air in terms of what you've been doing out there. So I, I want to hear just a little bit more about what it's like to be back, you know, in terms of, you know, we, we talked about what it was like on the podcast to be back mm -hmm. involved in the organization. But at that point, you know, there wasn't that much going on. Now you've been very involved, whether it's, you know, being with Bruce at the World Baseball Classic to being on the field with players uh, during camp and everything. How's it been for you to be back on the field like that? And, and you know, what was kind of your your vibe in spring training as, you know, we we got through and now get ready for opening day? It was great. Um, you know, I had to get, got to put on a, on a uniform and, you know, John Jay is a new coach, uh, the new outfield coach, first base coach that's on Skip Schumacher's staff. And, you know, he's a first time big league coach. And, uh, you know, this guy was a tremendous outfielder and really knows his stuff. So I was kind of there. Me and Juan Pierre were, were out there just kind of, you know, helping him uh, guide these outfielders and, and do drills and, and lend whatever uh, advice we could possibly think of um, as far as, you know, not really necessarily technique at this point. I mean, Jazz had some, uh, you know, it's a brand new position for him. So Juan Pierre had a lot to say to him. Uh, obviously, that's where Juan Pierre played. Um, but for me and him, it was more about you know, how to, how to work, uh, taking your reps and batting practice, getting those reads off the bat. So it becomes almost automatic. Like you're moving right when that, the, the bat, even before it makes contact with the ball, you're able to read where it's even going to go. So, you know, getting to be out there with the, you know, that's what I know. I know baseball. That's all I know. So to be able to just talk shop with uh, major league players and the outfielders, especially, uh, it was great. You know, I got to go out there pretty much every day, um, got down to go down the minor league side and, and watch the minor league games and kind of participate in, in, uh, chatting with the coaches and, you know, I'll probably do some trips uh, during the season to see the affiliates and, um, you know, write up reports on these guys and just, uh, you know, I'm in my happy place, you know, wherever they need me, I'm going and, and they're giving me the, the freedom to be able to, um, do kind of what I want and, and lend where, uh, ever I can, either on the business side or the baseball side. And it's, uh, it's been perfect. So uh, it, it's, it's so good for this organization to, to have you involved in that respect, because we, we've talked about in the past, you know, how much goes into player development and, and, and just keeping an eye on the minor leagues and, and, 
the more hands-on you can be as an organization, the better. Obviously, resources are finite, and it's really hard to to be hands-on with every single player. But having more people like yourself who can rove around and and help out, whether it's in spring training or at points during the season, is extremely valuable. And I've had so many different minor leaguers on the the call up my prospect podcast that. They've talked about times where things clicked for them. It was when the hitting coordinator came to town and was able to actually work with them. Or it was when, you know, one of the like Jeff Bagwell with with the Astros was able to come in and help some of these players. Like it's just a new perspective. And that's not to knock any of the pitching coaches and hitting coaches in the minor leagues who work really hard and have a lot of knowledge. But being able to just offer something that that very few people on this planet can offer to some of these learning developing players is something that you really can't quantify and is so extremely valuable. So it's I know Marlins fans are going to be thrilled to hear that you'll be working with some of the minor leaguers. You'll be roving around a little bit. And uh, on the minor league side, was there anyone I know names like there's probably so many names you've been going through, but was there anyone that like stood out to you that you saw like, Oh man, man, that kid could play um, as you were back there. Or is it too hard to, to remember a minor league name? Yeah, off, I mean, off there's the so many bodies and so many names that I'm just getting uh, kind of learning at, at this point. That's so, crazy. Yeah. Um, it'll be better when I actually get to wherever they're stationed and be able to see the roster and see them take real at bats. You know, I can 100%. watch batting practice all day long and everybody can hit batting practice. I mean, these guys all look good at, you know, swinging the bat and batting practice, but I want real life situations where now they're under a little bit of stress and you see how they handle that stress. And, you know, like you said, I come in with a perspective that maybe someone else doesn't see or just a, a different angle of approach on how to, uh, attacking at bat, you know, might click for somebody. And they say, oh yeah, that makes sense to me because these guys all have the routines and they're all unique individuals. Um, sometimes you just need to press that one button that's like, boom, the light switch goes on and and they're a change player. Yep. A hundred percent, especially with players that are young and, and still, you know, malleable in that regard. Uh, on the big league side, obviously he just Chisholm sorting a new position in center field and, uh, you know, props to him for, being willing to do that. Uh, but I, I think people will realize it's very hard to learn a new position that you've never played before. Uh, you mentioned he was kind of getting some pointers from JP. Can you like contextualize? It's not just for Jazz Chisholm. It's just, just in general because Jordan Walker, top prospect for the St. Louis Cardinals, um, who was actually committed to Duke, uh, ended up getting drafted and signed away. But extremely, extremely talented kid. It's it's all about the bat, and that's why he made the roster. He's a third baseman, naturally, that Nolan Arenado guy's kind of in the way. He expedited his timeline. They got to find a spot for him. So he was trying to learn the outfield. Mm. I watched a lot of video as I was trying to figure out, you know, the prospect rankings and doing write-ups. And look, the reads weren't great. There was definitely some things that he needed to learn, but the bat's valuable. They'll find a spot. Same story with Jazz. He's has a chance to be their best hitter or their most valuable hitter. So you find a spot, especially when you go get Luis Arias, who's probably their other best hitter, who's going to be playing that same spot that he was playing last year. So what was like, what's the biggest learning curve you feel like? Because you were a guy that kind of had to learn the outfield too. You weren't always an outfielder. You were a pitcher, you were a first baseman. Then you learned a little bit more of the outfield. What's the biggest learning curve at that highest level uh, to, to, to try to get used to playing the outfield as a big leaguer? Well, you're just you're so far away from the ball. So um, getting reads and center field is probably the easiest outfield position to play because you don't get those extreme line shots. So if I'm in left field and, you know, right hander hooks one down the line, I'm going to have it's going to be a, a quite a, 
uh, a hook, so to speak. If a lefty is late on a ball and he's slicing that ball toward the line, that's a big, it's going to be a big sweeping slicer toward the line where when you're hitting up the middle of the field, you don't get those extreme slices, whatever. So it's going to be pretty true. Um, so for jazz, it's just going to be about judging speed off the bat launch angle. I mean, you know, we, we talk about that as we're hitting, but trying to judge the angle coming off the bat to judge how far it's going to go and then adjust from there. And, you know, I think, um, for the main thing, the probably the biggest or the hardest thing for an outfielder to do when they're just learning a new position is having the confidence to play shallow, right? Because every outfielder is afraid of the ball going over their head. And, you know, we tried to pound into these guys' heads, try to do as much work as you can to be comfortable going back on the ball because it's the hits that are mishit in front of you that the ones that really kill the pitcher. You know, if they give up a line drive bullet, off the wall, you're not going to catch it anyway. Yeah, and that's on the pitcher. When you're when you're getting the ball hit over your head, that's on the pitcher. Uh, the stuff in front of you, that's on you. You know, if you're not positioning yourself correctly. So, um, going back and, and back and forward uh, is the hardest thing. He's got so much speed, he'll be able to run anything down in the gaps. He'll be fine there. But I think it's just the the straightforward in and out balls. He's going to have the most uh, adjustment time to do and. That's batting practice, man. You go out there and batting practice, you get a hundred balls a day hit that you can take live reads. Uh, you can take live reads on. And it doesn't take a whole lot of time. If you're really concentrating on those, it doesn't take a whole lot of time for it to become second nature. And, and that's the big thing is, is the reps. And, and, you know, you mentioned going East and West, like jazz flies. That's something you can't teach. That is, you know, having that, that closing speed can help for, you know, what could be, a little bit delayed reads and jumps that can help bail or a bad you out. route. You might be able to run a ball down. Yep. But it, it it is an interesting point that you make where it's probably more likely that a lot of these Marlins pitchers, because they are so talented and a lot of them are ground ball sinker guys busting on your hands. If you're a righty, they're going to give up ground balls or weekly hit fly balls. Like if they're getting given up the shots, if Sandy Alcantara gives up a shot to, to the warning track, like, tip your cap, right? It's more likely that there's going to be those bloopers. I'd say the same thing with Lazardo. I'd say the same thing with Edward Cabrera when he's on even. I mean, these pitchers are really talented. Did you get a chance to see any of these arms, uh, you know, much in spring training? And you yeah. know, what can you say about just just how, I mean, that's the bread and butter for this Marlins team. That's how this Marlins team is going to succeed is off of the backs of of this extremely talented rotation. Um, but can you speak to just what it was like to see all of these young, talented arms here in Miami? Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, the backbone of our organization and I think the backbone of our success is going to be on the mound because uh, top to bottom, we have such great arms. Uh, you know, you, you talk about those five guys you just mentioned, starting rotation, uh, Garrett as well. Uh, and you got Puck that we got in a trade that's a six foot seven monster that I think his first warm up pitch in his first bullpen was 98 or something crazy like that. So, uh, you know, it's just mind boggling that the, the velocities they're throwing up there and and the talent at such a young age that we have. And Cabrera, just uh, Yuri Perez is another one that uh, is on the horizon. That This guy, uh, the way he handles himself on the mound is is well beyond his years. And um, when you got that kind of confidence and that kind of talent, uh, you know, barring, you know, unforeseen injury or anything like that, it's it's set yourself up for a really good career. <clears throat> So Yuri, that that's what it's funny. I, I've heard from teammates like he's he's like a vet. You know, it's like it's like he's he's much older than he is. He's nineteen, which is which is remarkable. Six yeah. eight, so talented. We could gush all day about how how talented he is as a pitcher. He got a lot of opportunity this spring uh, and ch was challenged by this organization by you know getting 
starts in spring training against big league lineups and the A lineups. And, you know, he struggled at times, but he still managed to get through it. And, you know, you wouldn't see him sulking or getting upset. Like he made the next pitch. Uh, overall, it was a learning opportunity for him. And he's going to start the year in the minor leagues. But can you kind of speak to how a guy like him with his stuff, how talented he is? It, it kind of shows the gap, though, still of the work that he still has to do to get to the big leagues. You know, what causes a guy like that that's that talented, that nasty to still get beat up a little bit in spring training against big league hitters? Is it like fastball location? Is it, you know, sequencing? Like, you know, what, what, what do you feel like is the separator? Because not a lot of guys in the big leagues thrown, you know, 98 as effortlessly as he does. There are plenty of guys that do it, but, but not that many and not that many have his pitch mix. That said, he still got hit pretty hard in spring training. Yeah. You know what? Um, I don't really care about velocity as much as deception. Um, when I was playing, I, I remember there were some guys that threw 98 miles an hour that I had. I always dig in the box. I couldn't wait to face them. And there are guys that threw 91 that I hated to face because they hit the ball very well and they had great deception. So um, I think with him, you know, you get that slot where uh, the hitters might see it longer than than some other pitcher that's not even thrown with that kind of velocity. And these major league hitters are talented, man. If you put it over the middle of the plate uh, with not a lot of movements um, and sometimes when you're putting pressure on yourself, you're trying to overthrow a little bit, that takes away movement. Yeah. So if you're throwing a straight fastball, these guys are going to jump all over it. And I think that's probably what we saw in spring training for, for Yuri is just the nerves a little bit. You know, it's like you said, 19 years old and he's thrust into a big league situation uh, trying to impress. Uh, I think he overthrew a little bit. And I think that took away a little bit of movement and, you know, that's a recipe for balls over the white part of the plate. And these guys are good. They're, they're going to hit it. If you make more than one mistake per at bat. It's a great point because he's a guy that does rely on a lot of arm side run and gets a lot of ground balls. He's kind of like a Sandy light. But when I watched uh, the game I went to, I was right behind home plate. It did seem like the the, the fastball was a lot straighter and, and guys were on it. But he, he's this is probably the best thing that could happen. Right. Adversity in, in, in a setting that doesn't really matter. Um, and, and to kind of go back to the drawing board and, and continue to get better from there in this minor league season. I want to wrap up with what well, we'll get to the Jersey and then a couple questions about yourself kind of as in the theme of spring training, you know, getting back into the the regular swing of things. I wanted to ask you a few things about yourself and then see if you are, how you do <clears throat> what, like what spot in the lineup did you personally like, like, you know, cognitively, like, you know, consciously, what did you feel the most comfortable in? And then what did you, and maybe it's the same answer. Where do you think you hit best in the lineup in terms of OPS? Um, I mean, for me, the RBI had value. Um, so I was always wanting to be in the middle of the lineup order three, four or five to where I had the most opportunity to knock guys in. Um, you know, someone mentioned the other day that, uh, the RBI is so devalued nowadays that mm -hmm. guys will know their war going into a game they can calculate it as it goes along. And instead of say, I'm going to, I was trained. If there's guys in second and third with nobody out, I'm going to hit a ground ball to the second baseman. That guy comes in, I get an RBI. The other guy goes to third base. Now he's a third with only one out. So somebody else can get a ground ball or a fly ball to get him in. Um, but what I've heard is that that makes my war go down because <laughs> I hit a ground ball to second base. It has doesn't have the exit velo that you're supposed to have or whatever. So guys don't want to do that anymore because they're getting paid on war. Yeah. They're getting paid on war. So uh, I think we're losing the fact that we're here to win a game. You know, we're here to win baseball games. That's what we're doing as a team. 
I understand it's an individual sport when you're one-on-one against the pitcher, but we're still here to win games. Um, so I always like to be in those RBI producing situations and three, four or five was where I wanted to be. So it's funny, I actually was talking to your son Griffin about this, about the RBI and, and whether it's, you know, of course, there's there's other factors that go into it. If you're on a good team, you'll have more opportunities to drive in runs. But I kind of asked him, you know, do you feel like that's something that you have control over? And he said, I used to be like a little bit of a doubter about it. And then my teammate, Troy Johnston, who I know, you know, Troy pretty well. And I think he he spoke to you a little bit during spring training. Yeah. Uh, awesome Washington guy. Boy. Good hitter. Good hitter. And a guy that loves driving in runs. And Griff was like, he used to tell us last season how much he likes driving in runs, how much he likes being in that spot. And he'd do it every freaking time. So he's like, Troy made him a believer in, in the RBI in terms of like really being able to control that. Because there's something almost freeing about, I don't have to get a hit here. I just have to hit it in the air to the outfield, or I just have to hit it on the ground up the middle or or in the infield. That almost gives you a little bit more confidence, right? To just, just do something that isn't a line shot into the gap. It, you know, you can kind of control the outcome a bit more. Do you know where in the lineup you hit the most in your career? No clue. Fourth. You Fourth. hit cleanup more than any other spot in your career. 602 games in the cleanup spot. Next most was 408. Also, you hit your best in the cleanup spot. 810 mm. OPS, a 293, 354 456 slash line in the cleanup spot. So kind of backs it up there in terms of probably had more RBI opportunities there of your, you know, RBI breakdown, 398 runs driven in, in the cleanup spot. That was more than double any other spot in the order. Um, And, you know, 602 games in that cleanup spot was not double the amount of at bats as two other spots in the order. Second most was in the five spot, which you were also very solid there, but interestingly, slightly better numbers in the sixth spot where you played 358 games. So some of it could be coincidental. Some of it could have been where you hit in the order on certain teams in years that you had good seasons. But I do think it's telling that you had the largest margin of difference in the cleanup spot in terms of your numbers. That's the one spot yeah. that you had over an 800 OPS and the highest batting average as well. That's where I liked. I like being there and that guy that, uh, you know, a run producer, they they called you back then, you know, when you yeah. drove in runs and they still uh, exist. Look at Jose Abreu. And, and I think the Astros were smart to pick him up. I think he's going to drive in 120 this year. I do. Yeah. And, and he did it. With that with, team could, could very well. <laughs> um, How many games do you think you hit leadoff in your career? Oh, leadoff? Or how many at-bats do you think you've had as a leadoff hitter? I don't even remember ever hitting leadoff. Maybe... Two games, three games? Yeah, five at-bats as a leadoff hitter. Five at-bats. <laughs> which is pretty funny. Uh, you were three for five. Oh, nice. Should have hit you leadoff more. No kidding. Um, I think little... I, I think I remember that. And when I saw the lineup card, like, it was like shocking. Like, what the hell? I'm leading off? that I've never seen that before. So you're a guy that likes to drive and run. So I, how would you feel in the leadoff spot? It's a different role. It's kind of see pitches battle. Uh, they're going to go after you a little bit more. Like, how would you feel? Yeah, see, leadoff? that wasn't me, man. If there was a first pitch fastball down the middle, I'm hacking. Um, my teammates, my first at bat would not have been happy with me. Cause you know, that's the guy that gives kind of the scouting report, right? You see some pitches, you're like, Oh my God, he threw me a slider here, a fastball here, his fastball's doing this. 
I would have been one pitch and out of there. And they're like, what's he got? I'm like, I don't know. He threw me a fastball down the middle. <laughs> That's all I got. No. And, and it's funny too. If anyone was concerned about maybe you not being honest, which I don't think anybody would be, the stats would back it up with runners in scoring position, 829 OPS, every other situation, 765. So not only is Jeff's recall good, he also tells the truth. Um, <laughs> men on 816 OPS too. So I could keep throwing stats out left and right, but it, it is really impressive in that regard. Um, one thing that, you know, I, I wonder how much this was a difference for you. Starter versus reliever. Did you, is it that much more uncomfortable facing a reliever? And I know it wasn't totally the way it is today where these guys just all come in and they're, they're you have to be 96 to be a reliever. But I mean, there were still a lot of tough relievers that you didn't see much of, you know, and then all of a sudden they come in. Uh, you know, did you feel that much more comfortable against a starter? Or did you kind of not really feel much of a difference? No, I, I think we felt different for the starter because, you know, uh, back then the workhorse has got 250 innings, you know, a year, uh, not just 200, which barely anybody gets now. So you're seeing them longer. You're seeing them that third at bat a lot of times uh, during the game. So, hell, I felt more and more confident the more pitches I got to see off the starter. So I wanted them to stand as long as they as like as long as I could, because um, I think I'd have them figured out by the third at bat. And, and what went into like scouting reports back then? Because, you know, it, 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 I say back then it really wasn't that long ago, but the, the game has changed technologically so much. The world has changed technologically over the last 20 years as much as it has in the last 100 years. Uh, yeah. What like what was a scouting report like back then? Our scouting report was uh, the advanced scout would go and give us velocities and what he was seeing as movement on his pitches. And then we get the video and we we play the video in the in the you know the starter. We play the video in the locker room for just having a loop. So you're watching, 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 and then uh, you know for me I liked it simple. I like to know what his fastball did. I did like to know what velocity was if it was something I really need to get down early for or was an average fastball, but back then was you know 90, 91 miles an hour. Now it's you know 94 almost. Um, and then um, you know depth. Did it sink? Did it run? Um, was it straight? I wanted to know those things because everybody had a slider and they all pretty much looked the same. I mean, some are better than others. Everybody has a curveball. Um, but I did like to know about the changeup as well because I thought a good changeup was the best pitch in baseball. And I think I think all, everybody would agree with that. I mean, there's nothing quite like a good changeup. Uh, you saw during that the last game, USA, how much uh, trouble they had with that split finger, man. All the Japanese pitchers have a split finger. And that is a nasty pitch. And did you see Goldschmidt's at bat? Yeah, you don't see Goldie like that. You don't see him swinging miss at balls like that ever. And he was so uncomfortable. <laughs> can you explain what makes a splitter so hard to hit? Arm speed, arm speed. You know, you can split your fingers and throw with the exact same arm speed. Um, that's what makes a great changeup. Is I'm I'm swinging off the arm, so I'm swinging off the hand coming through the the zone before it's released. I got to make up my mind and it looks like a fastball to me. So I'm already starting to gear up and start my swing thinking that it's a fastball until I recognize halfway there. Uh Oh, that's eight miles an hour difference. And then it's too late with so, that split. It's the same thing. It's just such great arm speed, but then you get a, a knuckling action almost on the really good ones. And it just dives at the end. I mean, really dives out of the strike zone. So, so, so that very was my tough pitch to recognize. Yeah, sorry. So that, that was going to be my, my question, though, was what's interesting to me is like, you know, with, with a lot of good changeups, they maintain the spin. So it's hard to differentiate. What's interesting to me is this, I've never seen a splitter, in, you know, as a hitter. Uh, it doesn't spin much generally. They're, they're very low spin pitches. That's why you get that yep. knuckling action. 
are you not able to pick up the spin as a hitter uh, until it's too late? Because it is spinning much less. That's what gives you that action. Is it just too hard to, to pick that up at, at by the end? I think I think just the arm speed is so great. You know, it's, sometimes they even throw it harder than they do a fastball because they can, because they know the grip is going to take away uh, the speed they want and give it the movement they want. So they can throw it as hard with a spin with the with the arm action. So when I'm looking at it out of the hand, damn, that looks like a fastball, and that's what I'm geared up for. And then all of a sudden, by the time you recognize the lack of spin, and then you got to recognize is that high enough to stay in the strike zone? And a lot of times, you just start in your swing, and it drops. The bottom drops out of it. Yeah. And, and that's a pitch that man, when it's, when you got to work in that, that kid Sasaki, Roki Sasaki was up to one Oh two. And then had that, that freak split. It just, it was a joke. One other stat that's nuts, not even a trivia question. I just wanted to like read it to you because it's pretty absurd. Like, of course you're going to have great numbers in a three, one count. Like that's what we all dream of, of, of is hitting in a three, one count. You hit three eighty six in those counts. What floored me was is 687 at bats or plate appearances off of like one, one counts. Meaning you like when you put the ball in play off of a one, one count, if you progress to a one, two count, then it's, then it doesn't count towards that. Right. You hit three sixty nine in one, one counts. How, like, is that like, does anything click there? Is there like, that's, that's not that favorable of a count. I'd almost argue that's advantage pitcher. I, I viewed it as an even count and I didn't want him to get to one and two. So I was ready one and one put a ball in play. Um, and for me, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the the nasty pitch that a, that a two strike count would be, a, you know, slider off the plate away or or something down in the dirt. They're trying to get you to chase. I think one one they're looking to throw a strike to get you to one two. And you know, I didn't strike out a whole lot. So I was able to let balls go that are out of the strike zone, maybe a little bit better than others. And I don't know that was of the count. Did you feel like you had uh, just a really good idea. Like we don't get chase rates from, from when you played. And and that's a stat that really tells you a lot. Obviously <laughs> you're able to figure out how much a guy expands the zone. Did, did you feel like you would have been like one of the better in that department? And you said you didn't strike out a lot, but you also like, like to, to swing when it was in the zone. And, uh, but what, what stands out to me is the last count stat I'll give you full counts, 500 on base percentage. And of course, full count, three balls, you're going to walk a lot, but it's also two strikes, and you also have to pull the trigger if it's close. Five hundred on base percentage is pretty impressive, no matter no matter the count. And, and when it's full, I think that's pretty cool. Did you feel like you you had a really good ability in that spot to still be able to shut down a borderline pitch? Um, yeah, I mean that, that's just uh, you, you try to zone in. Uh, I tried to look at a, a three and two count that the pitcher is in more trouble than I'm in, right? So. He does not want to walk me for for one, because um, pitchers never want to walk anybody. So I knew that they weren't going to nibble. They're not trying to to go down and away with a slider on the black. They're not trying to go down and in with a nasty cutter or or a sinker. They're going to throw something mid range uh, for a strike. If they make a great pitch, right, you t- tip your cap. But more often than not, they're going to make that middle white third of the plate. Last trivia question on yourself: What position defensively? Do you think you had the lowest OPS and batting average? And so based on Third what, base. sorry, Third base. Third base. Actually, you were pretty good when you no, played third. 299, 361, 472. Oh, damn. Wow. Um, I had no clue you played third base until recently. That was, I, I, I need to find video of you playing third. No, you don't.
just do not look at those videos. They were it, it might be a trick question. It was an emergency situation. It wasn't <laughs> 60 games. Yeah. Um, the- I don't know. First base, left field, um, right field, maybe. It might be a trick question. DH. Oh, yeah. I hated DHing. I was going to load it up and just ask if you liked DHing, but yeah, your number's way worse when you DH'd. I was like 240 something, Two, right? As a DH. 240 is a DH. How'd you know that? I don't know. You hated I, it that much. I hated it like, that much. I had to see how bad I was when I DH. Because some guys love it. Some guys mash his DHs. Why did you not like it? I just needed to be active. I liked um, if I had a bad first at bat, I liked that I got to go on defense and forget about it, you know, and yeah. kind of move on to the next thing where uh, DH, you could have a bad first at bat and you're stewing about it for a couple innings until you, you have to do it again, you know, and it's, you got to keep your body loose and go in the cage and you're taking hacks off tees. And I don't know, I just didn't like it. I like being involved in the game. A lot of guys do feel that way too. It's a very polarizing topic. Um I, but guys in the minors, I know they're happy to take the day off every once in a while and and, and get that DH role. I know your 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 son likes to play the outfield, but I've talked to him every once in a while. Getting the DH spot's not so bad. Yeah, it's, uh, not know, so bad. it's not so bad. As a pinch hitter, though, eight oh six OPS. You had two ninety as a pinch hitter. Look out, Lenny Harris. Um, <laughs> let's move on to the jersey before, and then we'll wrap up with with just uh, some some talk about you know how you feel about the Marlins this year and what you're looking forward to. But this jersey looks like a San Francisco Giants jersey. I don't know. It's white with like an orange collar. Yeah, close. Not the Giants. Mets? Nope. What's orange and white? Orange. Orioles. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, we've already done Ripken. Hall of Famer? Yes. Hall of Famer. Man. Okay. Can you give me a span of years? I played against him. Uh, he was very late in his career, very early in mine. Uh, I'm trying to remember who he was playing for when I played against him. Maybe the Mets. The Mets. Orioles and Mets. Position? Um, position did he play? Uh, outfield? Outfield? Yeah, outfield, I think. You don't know his position? No, I don't actually. Outfield. I think outfield. Maybe first base. Dang, I don't want to lay it up. I don't want to lay up on a tee for you. I mean, geez. You didn't even know what position he plays. Okay, hold on. Hall of Famer for the Orioles. There aren't that many. I feel like there's like sneaky a decent amount. He's so finishing that I played up- against. He was finishing up when you came up. Yes. So like Baines, it wouldn't, it couldn't be Baines. He's not in the Hall of Fame. He's not in the Hall of Fame. I thought he no. was. Can't be. Could it be Alomar? Nope. This is He's a switch up. hitter. Switch hitter. Who's a switch hitter? Hmm. <laughs> switch hitter. Like he was, I think Chipper Jones broke his record for most home runs in the switch. Oh, hitter. was Tim Raines? No. Was he not a switch hitter? No. Uh, he might have been. I thought he was. He might have been, but he didn't. He didn't hit a lot of home runs. This guy hit a lot of home runs. 
I think you might have me stumped on this one. Who is it? Turning around. That Orioles jersey is just nice. Eddie Murray. Really? You overlapped with Eddie Murray? Yeah. Like very, like in 93, he might have retired. And like my rookie year, I remember. I don't know why. I don't know why I have a mental note of him. Like in my mind, he played way before you. Like I I, I thought he was like done in the 80s. Eddie Murray. Do you have any like distinct memories of him as a player? Well, he was a coach uh, for us with Baltimore. So um, I got to hang around him a lot. Uh, and the reason, one of the reasons I wore it today is I did a function for the Marlins and this guy from Baltimore came up and um, he was at some place at a conference or something like that. And Eddie Murray was at the bar, just nobody else around him. Not nobody even he's recognized hanging. him. This, this guy came up and he's like, Oh my God, Eddie Murray, how you doing? I'm, I'm from Baltimore and my God, you're one of my favorite players. And that's so uh, cool. So, but Eddie's a great guy and had a nasty cutter as a, as a BP thrower, but um, <laughs> he could stand, even as a coach for us, he could stand on the left field line and throw it out of Camden Yards. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. He had a hose. He had a rock. <laughs> he had a good arm. He had a hose. What, what, what amazes me about his numbers is never really had like that holy crap insane season. It was really, I mean, he was a runner up for MVP twice and it was during an era where there wasn't a lot of offense. But just to, to, he led the league in home runs with 22 one year to, to give you an idea of how little offense there was at some points. But to hit 500 home runs with only having a couple 30 home run seasons, like that's consistent. Yep. 3,255 hits, 504 home runs. And he is the all time leader in sacrifices for what that's worth. Hmm. Uh, that's kind of cool. Uh, but yeah, wow. What, a, what an awesome career uh, and a really good player that probably doesn't get enough fanfare as a guy that. Finished. He played more recently than I thought. 97 was his final year with yeah. the Dodgers. He played nine games in 1997 with the Dodgers, 46 with Anaheim. Uh, heck of a player. Finally, to wrap up, what are you looking forward to most with this with this season um, as, as, you know, a guy that's going to now be involved with the organization for the season, but also just, you know, watching this Marlins team. Obviously, it was not the best spring training. I think they were last in just about every offensive category, but it is just spring training. Clean slate. We get moving. This is a more talented team than last year. What are you most excited to watch on the field? And what are you most excited to, to just do uh, as part of the organization now and, and being back involved? Well, I'm just glad that spring training is over. Um, you know, for me, it's just way too long. <laughs> as a player, I love the the spring trainings. We had strike shortened seasons and we had like a three and a half or four week spring training one time. And I thought that was absolutely perfect. But, um, you know, just to get a clean slate, uh, get all this talk about oh we didn't have a good spring blah 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 let's you know let's flip the switch tomorrow and get everybody on the field and they're in the position they're going to be staying in for the whole time and um you know honestly to watch this pitching staff do their do their thing um you know it's going to be uh the offense's job to score some runs to back these guys up because we're going to see a lot of three and under run games given up by this pitching staff so we need to find a way, and I think Skip Schumacher is going to really impress upon these guys, find a way to score runs. Yep. Uh, if we have to get those guys over, like you know, I was talking about earlier, we're going to do it. And um, I think he's going to put some plays in that uh, hopefully will get runners in motion and uh, kind of push the envelope a little bit on uh, defenses. And uh, we're going to have to make And there's no doubt about that. And I hope uh, everyone's on board with that. And we're going to see some, you know, what do we have uh, – 41 run losses last year or something yeah. crazy. Yeah. You flip 10 of those and now you're all of a sudden you're a winning season. So yeah, it is amazing that that's the difference. And, you know, having a healthier pitching staff, having those, those guys back and, you know, adding 
arguably the best contact hitter in baseball in Luis Arias to the fold. Joey Wendell's a speedy guy that can spray it all over. So is John Birdie. Gene Segura is a good bat to ball guy. Like the small ball way is going to be the way to win ball games. Cause like you said, if you push across three runs, that might be all you need to win a lot of games with this staff. So uh, I'm excited to see, you know, how, how they play and, and what the approach is. And we're seeing teams like the guardians really succeed with that approach. Uh, and, and that's a great blueprint over there in Cleveland. But that'll do it for this episode of Outside the Box with Jeff Conine. Really excited to talk to you through the season and, and get your takeaways from this team, from your trips through the minor league ranks and what you're seeing out there. And uh, I think the insight and information you're going to be able to give us here throughout the year is going to be really fun. Uh, as always, thank you all for listening. Look forward to talking to you very soon again on Outside the Box with Jeff Conine.